What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Renew Church Leaders Podcast. Today, we're talking to Dr. Matthew Bates, one of America's leading youth theologians on two vital topics, faith and the gospel. These two topics are at the heart of some really important discussions today. They are both crucial to our understanding of what it means to follow the core teachings of the Bible. So without further ado, here is Dr. Bobby Harrington and Dr. Matthew Bates. Enjoy. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to this gathering, this teaching time with Matthew Bates, the author of a really important book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Uh, I'd like to encourage everyone as we begin with a couple of things. First of all, uh, this is a Renew production, and Renew Network sees our identity as in renewing the teaching of Jesus for disciple-making. And if you've gathered with us live, at the bottom of your screen, there is a Q&A box. And as I spend some time here with Matthew, you'll be able to type in questions and kind of engage with us in the conversation. A little bit of background. One of the most important conversations today centers around what is the gospel and what is saving faith. And the great thing today, and the reason why I've been looking forward to this so much, is that we have with us a a New Testament scholar who's right now focused upon writing and interacting with the leading experts around the world on both of those topics. What is the gospel and what is saving faith? So, Matthew, welcome. Uh, Thank you for being with us. And if you would, please, could you give up just a little bit of background about yourself for, for our audience? Thank you so much, Bobby. It's wonderful to be with you, and uh, it's wonderful to be part of what Renew is doing. It's exciting. Um, yeah, a little bit about myself then. Um, I grew up in a very uh, conservative, traditional church, uh, Protestant, uh, and uh, as I was navigating that landscape as a young man uh, through youth group and whatnot, Uh, I began to uh, have serious questions about the cogency of what I was learning. And uh, this sort of threw me into the science direction as I saw that as the premier way to know what's true in the world. And I began to get invested in science, completed a degree in physics. Uh, Well, while I was doing that, though, I I began to see science as limitations. Uh, And that that, uh, thrust me back into a full-fledged faith conversation, but trying to do it in a more holistic way. Uh, And as I kind of renewed my faith, uh, I began to explore the Bible much more seriously, uh, developed a scholarly interest in it. And then I decided, you know, I really want to go further with with this. Uh, So I want to go and get training at seminary and uh, learn how to be a leader in my church in more effective ways. I didn't really envision this as a career move. I was an electrical engineer at that point uh, and thought I would probably continue in electrical engineering. Uh, But as I... uh, as I continued to study, I realized I had uh, a real desire to just go further. So I went on and did a PhD uh, in New Testament uh, at the University of Notre Dame. So that gave me an, an interesting opportunity to dialogue with Catholic perspectives, Protestant perspectives, and uh, my convictions as a Protestant never shifted, uh, but nevertheless, I think it has enriched me. So that's a little bit about me, a, a little bit about my background. Oh, that's good. Now, as I understand it, uh, you also did a master's at Regent College in Vancouver, which That's is right. a school I attended for one summer as well. 
That's uh, right. So that's pretty cool. But you won an award there, and you also won an award in your PhD work at Notre Dame. So I'm going to put you on the spot to tell us about those. Yeah. So uh, I did do uh, the, uh, the PhD work at Notre Dame and won a prize there uh, for uh, sort of having the the, the top uh, overall research teaching performance, uh, which was exciting. Uh, and then Notre, at Regent, uh, where I studied it with Gordon Fee, who's one of my personal heroes, Rick Watts and some others, I won the Biblical Studies Prize. So, uh, so that was exciting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you for, I know that putting you on the spot there uh, might make you feel a little uncomfortable. I just, uh, I just so appreciate that we're in a conversation with you because I think God's blessed you with a critical mind, but he's also uh, shown his favor on you in terms of uh, this done. I mean, um, Matt, to, to have somebody like Scott McKnight telling everybody they need to listen to what you're saying uh, for at such a young age as a scholar is a, is a pretty cool thing. I'd also like our Renew listeners to know that in terms of us coming up with a faith statement of where we're going to take a stand, uh, we were blessed that you gave me and our team critical feedback as we were working through it. So thank you so much for that. And in fact, you'll notice that uh, salvation by allegiance, the language of allegiance uh, is, is in our statement. So let's get right to it. Okay. Sure. So, uh, you describe yourself as not a Roman Catholic, as not a, a gospel coalition, as not a, a, a easy believism. I, I don't even know the description of it. Tell us what you're not described for us, what you are, in terms of what you believe the Bible teaches. Yeah, um, I, do, I do feel like these labels sometimes can be unhelpful. And so I, I'm afraid whenever uh, people write on the topic of the gospel and salvation, whenever we identify too readily with one camp or another, uh, there's a tendency to just dismiss the argument and to say, well, of course that person's saying that uh, because they're a Calvinist or they're an Arminian or whatever it might be. Uh, what, the kind of work I'm doing in um, Salvation by Allegiance alone, um, I, like to ta- I like to call the model um, a, a, the, uh, an, a gospel allegiance model uh, because I would say that it's not quite the same as any of those. Um, there are ways in which it intersects um, with traditional Arminian concerns uh, and, and Methodist readings, probably more than any other. Um, but at the same time, uh, I do think that there are some new things uh, that are being offered there. Particularly, um, I'm wanting to see faith as something that is embodied from the ground up. That it's something. It's not that faith is something that is a mental thing. And then once we have the mental thing in place and we're trusting, then we then move to bodily activity as if the faith action has to be first and separated from the body. Uh, But really, it's bodily from the ground up. That's what I'm trying to argue. And that would be the ways in which it differs from um, some traditional Protestant articulations. Um, It's certainly a Protestant reading, um, but there are ways in which it it differs as well, partly because uh, Luther, Calvin, and some of the, the forefathers in the Protestant tradition tended to see faith as an interior thing, uh, and that it's mainly an interior movement of trust or confidence, that we have trust or confidence in God's promises, and that's what really faith is. I, I think whenever we move back into the New Testament world, we find that faith is something that's uh, more enacted and more embodied from the get-go. It's more externalized and outward-facing. Okay. 
So um, as you describe that, your understanding of faith is going to be built around an, an in-depth analysis of the word pistis for faith in the New Testament. But Matthew, it's also built around, and in fact, what I'm about to say, I think is prior, a real sense that Jesus is reigning king and Lord of lords, and uh, that it's about surrender. So first, connect with your concept of the gospel and of Jesus as enthroned king or Lord, and how then, then we're going to move into how that affects our understanding of faith. Yeah, great question. Yeah, I think that uh, the whole problem around faith, work, salvation, the gospel, a lot of this has been bedeviled by an inappropriate nuancing of the gospel. So I think that uh, maybe the first step in the conversation is, is the right one that you've suggested is to sort of reorient, what do we mean by the gospel? Uh, and uh, I think that what has happened is that uh, the cross is essential to the gospel, it's central to the gospel, but it has been made the absolute center of the gospel in a way that excludes other things that are gospel too. So what has happened is I think that the cross has ended up eclipsing the full gospel. We want to say the cross is absolutely essential to the gospel. Uh, but on the other hand, we want to have a fuller, more robust narrative and to reframe the gospel in terms of how the Bible presents it. So as the Bible presents the gospel, the, the overarching framework is Jesus's kingship, that Jesus has become the king or the Lord. We see this, for instance, when Peter's presenting the gospel after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And sort of the climactic moment is that God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Christ. You, you see the sort of the double emphasis on his ruling authority, right? That he's now been exalted to the right hand of God. So although Peter presents many different things about the gospel, including the cross, it sort of draws up into a climax, right, with the, with the announcement that he's now ascended to the right hand of God the Father and has, re, and has received a new station of authority there as the king. So once we begin to see the royal framework as central, we can then locate the cross within that sequence as an essential element. Um, but it helps us to see that whenever we're talking about the gospel and the good news about Jesus, uh, it's a royal proclamation. Oh, that's good. So let's delineate what you just said uh, from other presentations of the gospel. So uh, we want to be as transparent as possible here, Matthew. So contrast that with, say, Calvinistic uh, gospel, if I can say that. I feel bad in a way of saying that, uh, other than just the common evangelical gospel. Let's make it that first. The, yeah. In fact, probably to be fair, we need to say the common evangelical gospels contrast right. them with what you're saying. Yeah, and I think that's a good way to put it, because I would say that this way of misreading the, the Bible's presentation of the gospel is pretty pervasive. So it crosses a lot of different lines. Um, so, for example, um, just to, to use two leading figures that we might talk about, John MacArthur and John Piper, they don't exactly agree about everything, but they're certainly very biblically focused uh, and important leaders in the church. They would both argue that justification by faith is the center of the gospel, uh, is what they would both argue. Uh, what I'm saying is that, in fact, justification by faith is not the center of the gospel, um, but that, in fact, Jesus's kingship is the center of the gospel. 
And I think that what has happened is that there's been a confusion around what counts as the gospel itself proper, and then what's a gospel benefit on the one hand, and what's a gospel response on the other. So we kind of have three categories that we need to distinguish. We need to, on the one hand, be able to talk about the gospel proper, uh, and we need then to be able to move to that and say, what benefits do we get from the gospel? And on the other hand, the third thing, uh, what does it count to respond to the gospel? And to realize that those three things are different things, and when we entangle them, then we end up, in, we end up with confusion. Let me stop there and, and see if you have a further question, but I think it could also probe that more deeply if you just want me to keep going. Yeah, yeah, no, no, this is good. So when people say that salvation by faith alone uh, is the core gospel, they're actually describing more the response to the gospel than the gospel itself. You're not saying that we're not saved by grace through faith. In fact, you, you're a hearty proponent of it, but you want to delineate what is the gospel? In other words, what does God do for us? And how does Jesus become a Lord of Lords and King of Kings, which is inherent in the gospel, and then our human response to the gospel, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And so, yeah, the best way to explain this would be to say that, that Jesus's uh, kingship uh, and his saving kingship is the center of the gospel, just really to put it as brief as possible. Uh, and that faith is the response to the gospel. Uh, we see this, for instance, when in Mark, we first get the announcement of the good news, right? The, uh, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. There we see that actually the repent and believe are separated from the gospel. They're, they're, uh, they're a gospel response, right? We're called to repent and believe in the gospel, which shows that they aren't the gospel. Uh, there's something separate from the gospel. So whenever we confuse them and we make repent and believe part of the gospel, what we do is we move faith interior to the gospel in a way uh, that the Bible just doesn't do. Uh, and so we end up making then, uh, what is the gospel? Uh, a popular evangelical presentation of the gospel is, well, what's the gospel? It is believe that Jesus died for your sins or trust that Jesus died for your sins. You see what has happened there is that faith has been moved interior to the gospel, when in actuality, the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, or that's part of the gospel, right? Um, when we move faith interior to the gospel, it becomes very introspective. It becomes about whether or not I'm trusting that Jesus died for my sins. So really, my trust becomes something that I have to scrutinize, and it all can kind of move into some sort of interior, cyclical, uh, dangerous kind of doubting of the self. We, it takes our eyes away from Jesus. Uh, and Jesus's good news is the gospel proper. That's good. So uh, I want to shift Matthew in just a second to the nature of saving faith, since uh, the you know clear teaching of the Bible is we're saved by grace through faith. Right now we're talking about the grace part or the gospel part. If you can uh, maybe, uh, I don't know if you have this in a handy fashion. I may actually have it in a handy fashion. But yesterday, as you and I were talking about some work that you're working on now that uh, hopefully will be published next year, you give some summary descriptions of the gospel. Just yes. in terms of wrapping our minds around what you're saying, if you don't mind sharing those, I don't know if you can share them on the screen. Sure. I think I can. Uh, but that um, might be very helpful for those who've joined with us in this uh, conversation. So just sure. to summarize, as, as uh, Matt's finding that document, what we're saying is that the gospel itself 
is separate and apart from the response to the gospel, and the gospel itself has the cross in it, but it's more than that. And in fact, the focus of the New Testament gospel would be the kingly reign of Jesus, that he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. In fact, um, Matt, if you don't mind, just one of the things I want to come back to after you share the definition of the gospel is if you can delineate some words for us, uh, what's the difference between Messiah, King, and Lord? Because I think they're, they're really tied in, again, that faith is allegiance. But if you will, please give, share with us these summary descriptions of the gospel. And uh, I can already tell you I want to come back, and we're going to do some webinars on uh, uh, this teaching on the gospel because it's so rich. Wonderful. Especially yeah. for our, our uh, renewed tribe. Thanks, thanks, Bobby. As I as I'm getting ready to share that, um, let me let me circle back and uh, and and make just one further point. As I was talking about there being three distinctions, uh, on the one hand, we want to talk about the gospel proper. On the other hand, the response of faith. The third thing that we want to distinguish is the benefits. And when we talk about justification by faith, the justification is more a benefit than it is actually part of the gospel. And that's, that's one of the things, at least our justification is. We may want to talk about Jesus' justification being part of the gospel itself. All right, now, without further ado, though, you wanted some gospel summary statements. Let me see. I think I am prepared to share them. Uh, so let's see if I can bring one up here. All right. By the way, just as, as Matthew gets at it, he and I have been talking about this so much, and it's such a helpful conversation. And I appreciate your willingness to share on this is webinar that works. Is it sharing now? Yes. Okay, good. Um, so, yeah, the, the gospel then proper then, as, as we, as we want to talk about it, we want to say the whole thing, if we were to summarize it, is the gospel is the story about how Jesus has become the saving king or the Lord of lords and that Jesus is now reigning. Uh, and so that's the most important point. Uh, but we would, whenever we look at the Bible's more exacting statements about the gospel using explicit statements in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, and in Acts, uh, we can maybe flesh out a, an eight or maybe we would have a nine part gospel. Here I have it broken into nine distinct, uh, eight distinct steps. Uh, and that helps us to fill out what we mean by the gospel. First of all, the gospel is that Jesus preexisted as the son of God. Uh, and this means that he uh, was in divine glory alongside God the Father and that he was then sent by God the Father. And it's really the sending by God the Father that's the beginning of the good news. As he sent then, he, he comes and takes on human flesh. Uh, obviously, the theological term we usually use to describe this, taking on human flesh, is the incarnation, uh, which really means the enfleshment. That's what it literally means, right? And he did this as a fulfillment of the promises to David, as there was promises made to David that there would be an eternal king that would come from his own line. Uh, so it, this isn't a willy-nilly happening, right? This is something that is a very specific fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, the third step, Jesus died for our sins, according to the scripture. Uh, notice it doesn't say that Jesus died for my sins, right? And it actually, when we look at this text in 1 Corinthians, it doesn't even say Jesus. It says the Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And we would want to say Jesus is the Christ, but the title might be significant. Uh, and Bobby asked me to flesh out the difference between Christ, Lord, uh, and uh, I don't remember what else he said, uh, okay. but maybe I'll do that in a minute. Um, 
the burial then of Jesus is something that's emphasized uh, as part of the gospel. And this is uh, to stress that the death was real, right? It wasn't just a sham. It wasn't a fraud in some way, but Jesus really died. And we know this partly because he was buried in a tomb. Uh, and then uh, he had some sort of existence among the dead. This, uh, whenever he's buried, it speaks in the gospels about him going down into Hades sometimes. We have language like that in Acts. Uh, but there's some sense in which he resu- he's, he's in the abode of the, of the dead, one way or another. And this, again, stresses his real death. Uh, and then he's raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Uh, and this, is, this suggests that the resurrection is part of the gospel, too. Sometimes what happens is that the gospel gets reduced down to the cross. Right? We want to say, no, no, it's not just the cross. It's certainly the cross and the resurrection, plus other things, too. Uh, but we would want to summarize this by saying Jesus uh, lives, and therefore we live too. We live because he lives. Uh, and uh, this all uh, something that was in accordance with the Old Testament, with the scriptures. Jesus then appeared to many witnesses, and just like the burial, that, that stressed the reality of his death, the appearances stresses the reality of his resurrection, that he was really raised from the dead, uh, and that many people saw him, as Paul reports, more than 500 brothers at the same time saw him. And then finally, we get to the last one there, his installation as the Lord, or the Son of God in power, as as Paul puts it in Romans. Uh, So this is, I have that in bold there because it's the climax. It's where the energy of the gospel finally lands, as that Jesus has now ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He's been installed in a position of power, and he now rules on our behalf. And that's why the gospel is saving, is because Jesus is powerful And he gives us benefits as the one who is now in power, especially by the sending of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus will come again. So, Matthew, are you saying that uh, Jesus becomes king by his ascension and enthronement in a way that he wasn't king before that? That is what I'm saying. I I think that whenever we think about the Bible's overall witness, we would want to say that God is the eternal king on the one hand. Uh, and that he's always been ruling, and that God is triune, right? So he's Father, Son, and Spirit. So there's a sense in which God has always been ruling and always will. But there's another sense in which God intended to rule the universe through humanity. We see this as, uh, as instituted in the very beginning of Genesis when God makes Adam in his image, right, and Eve in his image. Uh, the point of that is that they are to be stewards of creation on his behalf and to rule over creation because God's creation is best ruled through a human. And so when Jesus is installed at the right hand of God, uh, he is now the divine human king. So before Jesus rules as part of, um, as part of the Trinity, uh, but without taking on human flesh, when he takes on human flesh and he begins to rule as the divine human king, we would say that now creation is under its proper human stewardship in a new way. Well, that's good. So uh, Jesus, in a new way, becomes Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So I'm going to press you to delineate those three terms, and then I want to tie it to the Great Commission. Okay. So when we talk about Jesus as Lord, obviously the title Lord means uh, something like Sir or Master. It can be used in a more general sense. It's the word kurios uh, in the New Testament. Uh, And so it's not something that is reserved for God alone, necessarily, or for Jesus alone. Uh, Anyone could be called a sir or a Lord who has a powerful position of authority. Uh, Meanwhile, when we talk about Messiah or Christ, 
that's a specific Jewish title for a long-awaited king. Uh, and it, it's connected to the idea of anointing. So in the Old Testament, uh, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed, but especially kings. Uh, and there was a sense in which this kingly anointing set you apart for special service to God. Uh, the anointing moved you into a sphere appropriate for divine service in some way. So when Jesus is the anointed one, uh, we have others who are anointed in the Bible too. David is anointed. Saul is anointed. Solomon undoubtedly anointed too, as these were anointed kings or messiahs. But what happens is after the time of, the, uh, uh, of punishment for God's people, they're disobedient to God, and God sends them into exile into Babylon. They're taken away from their homeland. And during that time, uh, people hope that one day there will be a renewal of the kingship, that God will begin to rule again through a king, a human king, and they look back to David as that ideal king. Uh, and so in looking back to David and the promises made to David, they expect a future Messiah or Christ to come. So when we talk about uh, the Messiah or the Christ, we really mean the, the special Jewish-style king who would not just rule over Israel, he would be so marvelous that the nations would flock to, to hear uh, from this king and would come under his governance in some way. So whenever we then move to the title king, that would be the more general title in the Greco-Roman world, Abbasalus. Uh, and so Herod could be called this, uh, even though he wasn't properly one. Well, Herod the Great was, but uh, the subsequent Herods were not. Uh, and, and so this title is a more general title for a sovereign um, and someone who would have independent rule. So there were really client kings underneath Roman authority. So those would be the three different titles, the Lord, Christ, and King. Okay, so in Acts 2, 36, when Peter says, Therefore God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, is there any nuance going on there? Well, I, I think that, the, yes, I think there is some, but I think it's mostly just a doubling down, right? It's a way of saying, uh, catch, catch the drift here. The really important news is this guy is now the ultimate ruler. Um, if you want to call him the kurios, if that's the language you understand, or if you want to understand it a little more precisely as the Christ, in both cases, the emphasis is on his sovereign authority that he's now received. So although I think we could on the one hand pull it apart and say that the kurios uh, connects to uh, him being uh, a Lord in some sense, and there may be an Old Testament valence to some of that. I, I don't know that I can really get into that here, but in the Old Testament Greek translations, uh, the, 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 the special title for God, Yahweh, is translated kurios. Uh, so he's translated as Lord. So it could be that in calling him the Lord and the Christ, there might be some claim to him being Yahweh himself. It might be part of the subtlety. Uh, or it might be a, a more just a maneuver to say that he's indeed the ruler. Either way, the emphasis is that he is alongside God at his very right hand and is in some sense Yahweh. Yeah. So uh, I think the book of Revelation uh, gets it really well when it says he's Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Absolutely. So not only doubling down, we're quadrupling down yes. on who he is. Okay. Now take that and tie it, if you would, to the Great Commission, where Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth. Yeah. That's the that's part sometimes we slide over, isn't it? The all authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's in light of that, therefore go, right? So the all authority part, we might tend to gloss over because 
uh, if we're attuned to thinking that the gospel is justification by faith, uh, and that really all of this salvation business is about Jesus dying for our sins, then we don't get that that's a gospel claim, right? When he's saying all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, he's saying that, that the, the whole gospel message is climaxed in me, right? I am now the king of kings, right? And as such, I'm seated at the right hand of power, and from that right hand of power, I have all authority. So I am going to be uh, through that, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to be uh, causing my kingdom to grow. So we would want to say that this all authority language then is, is the basis for the Great Commission, right? So then when he then says, therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, uh, we have to realize that this kingly authority is not disconnected from discipling, right? Uh, that uh, we can't just think that we are saved by believing Jesus died for our sins and well, therefore, maybe we should go and teach other people the same thing. No, really, the idea is that, uh, that all authority has been given, therefore go and make disciples, meaning make other people who are going to respond to the kingship of Jesus. Tell other people the good news so they have the opportunity to submit their lives to him through the process of discipleship. Got so we can't, yeah, we can't disconnect discipleship from salvation. We have okay. to, in the end, say that the only road to salvation is the road to discipleship. There's no other way to be saved than acknowledging Jesus as the king and beginning to live our lives under his authority. That's very good. In fact, just to, to punctuate the point you just made, when it says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, and the imperative in the text is making disciples, and the participial phrases describing how you do that, you go and you baptize them. We'll come back to that in just a second. And then he says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Absolutely. So what we have is kingship uh, and then this commission, which ultimately is an allegiance commission to teach other people to be allegiant and to be allegiant in such a way that they obey all of his teachings. So we're going to now transition, if we could, Matthew, to talk about what is faith? What is belief? Um, let me uh, remind uh, folks of something here. I've got my team encouraging me to remind everybody about the Renew Leadership Gathering that's coming up in October, just before the National Disciple Making Forum. So if you would, please go online to renew.org, because we'd love to have you join us for conversations just like the one we're having now with Matthew Bates. Okay, so let's jump into what is faith? What is, what is it to believe, to have faith? And, and jump in now to the response to the kingly reign of Jesus who saves. Yeah, thank you, Bobby. Great question. Yeah, and this is really at the heart of what I like to talk about is that there are a lot of misconceptions about what faith is in our culture. Um, we're really uh, encouraged by our culture to think that faith is disconnected from evidence, uh, that it's sort of um, something that you just arbitrarily do despite the evidence. So we might have people suggest, well, science and history say one thing, but you know, really it's all about trusting the Lord and faith, uh, which is another thing altogether. That's certainly not what the Bible means by faith, right? And we also might have people who think it's something like um, you know, making a leap in the dark at God, um, that we just have to launch out at him, even though it doesn't make any sense, 
uh, or we might have um, it just being a universal kind of um, feeling of goodwill, right? Um, just that you're stressed out, but like that's bad faith. It's like a bad vibe, right? You need to just kind of get beyond your stress and you need to just kind of relax into God. Uh, you might have that kind of discourse about faith. Um, whenever we look at what the Bible says about faith, um, it actually involves the idea especially of trust but that trust is not something that is a, a, a one-time only thing, right? That trust is something that endures over the course of time. And when we start talking about especially the gospel, and we start talking about what it means to respond to the gospel with this kind of enduring trust, the best language that we can use in English would be the language of allegiance. Because the gospel is that uh, its climax is that Jesus has become the king and is now reigning. So what does it mean to believe into that or to trust into that? It means especially to give loyalty to Jesus or allegiance to Jesus as that king. So if we misaim what faith is by targeting it the wrong thing or just part of the gospel, then we end up with a truncated understanding of faith. Well, how this usually happens is we think that what is the gospel is Jesus died for my sins. What does God want from me? He wants me to trust that fact, right? And to believe that fact. And so we just target it at that one point in the gospel. But when we have an expanded understanding of the gospel and we realize that it's really about, uh, about Jesus's kingship, uh, we're free to understand that faith means trusting allegiance, right? That it's about giving loyalty to Jesus as the king. Uh, and that it's not about responding just to that one part of the gospel, but the whole gospel. Yeah, that's good. So <clears throat> can you uh, define the uh, biblical words for, like the average person reading in English reads, okay, uh, John talks about believing, uh, Paul talks about faith. What, uh, what's going on with these uh, words in the Greek text that are translated into English? Yeah, so the word group underneath uh, the English is the pistis word group. Uh, and so we have the verb pistuo, which means I trust or I believe or I give allegiance to. Uh, it has all of those, those values. Um, or the word the noun uh, would be the noun faith uh, or trust or allegiance or loyalty uh, or faithfulness. The problem is that, uh, that English translations tend to only be able to give one um, sort of valence to that word, right? Because translators have to make choices. Um, and so there can be um, a certain naivety about what's going on underneath the surface, right? That uh, these words are, um, are richer than what English language can convey for us. So that when we see the word faith, um, we usually leap to the idea of faith in. Uh, in actuality, the word in Greek can mean something like faith toward or faithfulness toward, right? Or, or trustworthiness, not necessarily trusting in something. So I could describe uh, your actions, right? Uh, I could say that you are a faithful man, right? Uh, or that you show fidelity in your marriage. I could use that language to describe you, and I could use the word pistis to describe that. So it could be used to describe faithfulness uh, or your loyalty to your wife, and not just faith in you, as if I'm just trusting you. Uh, does that help? Yeah, I think it does. So just uh, so that everybody who's joined us realizes that we're talking about one word, say in John, being translated believe, in Paul or in James, 
being translated to have faith. And in other contexts, it's literally translated faithfulness. Yes. And, and it's all the same word in the Bible or the same root word. So, Matthew, why is just saying trust not enough? Yeah, um, because I think that whenever we use the word trust, um, that doesn't suggest, um, it doesn't give enough about the context in which we're trusting to. When we're talking about some, some uses of pistis, trust is a great translation. In other contexts, especially whenever we're dealing with royalty, right, that's not the appropriate word for the context. So really, allegiance is a contextual argument. Uh, whenever we see that we're called to respond to Jesus, who's called the universal king or the Lord of lords, in those contexts where we're talking about salvation most specifically then, when Jesus is called the Christ, right, that's not his last name, right, this is his royal title, it's a contextual argument that when we're dealing with royalty, allegiance is more likely to be in view. And we find this is the case in other Greco-Roman literature. Uh, we're, we're talking about uh, uh, a soldier, uh, a soldier's relationship to his general language of allegiance is used. Well, we're talking about somebody who is a client in their relationship to a, the king, right? The language of allegiance is an appropriate tra- translation of this term. So what I think has happened is that sometimes Jesus's title, Christ, sort of gets glossed over in people's mind. They just read past it. Uh, and they don't really allow the royal connotation to take the foreground and to control the meaning to a high enough degree. But when we begin to do that, when we, when we, we realize Jesus could be called other things, like Jesus of Nazareth, and he is called that, um, why, when we're talking about salvation, does Paul and why, why do Paul and others call him the Christ? Right? Well, because they want you to read in light of the royal framework. And that's why trust is not enough is because trust tends to aim it at the atonement, purely, and not at the enthronement. We don't want to aim trust just at the atonement. We want to aim allegiance at the atonement plus the enthronement. Does so somebody who's a poet could really do a lot with that. It's not just the enthronement. I'm sorry, it's not just the atonement. It includes the enthronement. Absolutely. The, the real understanding. Okay. So I hope that's helpful. And so what you're advocating is that faith necessitates faithfulness, loyalty, and allegiance. So one of the, the uh, values that uh, we hold to in, in my home church and in Renew Network <clears throat> is surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. The way you're describing it, uh, a better language might be, surrendering to King Jesus, who's Lord of Lord and King of Kings, just in terms of, again, the, the royal language and conceptual world. Yeah, Matthew, I, talk to us about uh, the response, including repentance, confession, and baptism. Okay, good. Yeah, so when we, we talk about responding to the gospel— Um, I think that if we were to package it all together, we could say, what does God require in response to the gospel? He requires pistis, uh, which I would understand to be allegiance alone, right? He requires allegiance alone, but allegiance or faith is not a disembodied thing, right? It's not something that we do in our minds that's somehow not connected to our bodies, but is embodied from the ground up. Uh, And so because it's embodied from the ground up, That means there are certain ways in which we can express allegiance or enact it with our bodies, 
premier ways we can do it. So one premier way we can do it would be repentance, which, which, which would require a reorientation of our life. So that, that word doesn't just involve a mental thing, as if you're thinking you're sorry, or if you're just thinking like, well, it would be nice to change my ways. Um, it involves an actual bodily change in what you're doing, right? Your body's doing something different when you repent. Uh, also, whenever we, we move then to the response of baptism, I would say this is uh, put forward in the Bible as the premier initial way to enact our allegiance with our bodies. Um, what we're doing in baptism is we are bodily stating our allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Uh, whenever you actually look in the Bible at the earliest descriptions of, of baptism and then beyond the Bible in the early church, um, it's, a, it's a bodily thing that involves a confession of allegiance to Jesus. Especially when we move in the early church, uh, into the early church fathers, we don't have a lot of like detailed descriptions of baptisms or what was said in the Bible. We have some hints. Uh, but when we move to the early church fathers, Justin Martyr and Tertullian, what does Justin stress about baptism above all else? That is a voluntary action, actually, is what he, what he stresses, and, and he uses language of lordship in association with that. Uh, Tertullian, when we go to him, he describes the baptismal ceremony very fully for us, and he says that actually in the middle of the baptism, uh, what you did was actually you made a proclamation, a confession, uh, a verbal confession that Jesus was Lord. You probably said something very close to the Apostles' Creed uh, at his time, uh, whenever just, uh, Tertullian was writing. So, what, uh, just so everybody can know, what date are we talking about? With early third century for Tertullian, Justin Martyr would be the middle of the second century. Okay, so Justin Martyr in the one fifties, Tertullian somewhere around two twenty. Yep, uh, long before um, the Nicene Creed, Constantine. This yep. is the core of people who have carrying on the stream where they were trained by the apostles, correct? Absolutely. And so Tertullian, yeah, he would, he would understand, right, like right in the middle of the ceremony, one of the things that you did uh, was that you made a public confession that Jesus Christ was the Lord uh, by saying something like the Apostles' Creed. So we, we, what has happened is baptism can, uh, has gotten separated from an allegiance commitment sometimes, right? That it's something that the church does or that is just done, but it's separated from the allegiance or the loyalty commitment. Uh, and that makes it confusing because people don't really see why baptism was seen as part of the saving response to Jesus. It was a saving response to Jesus because it was bodily allegiance. It was, it was a participation in pistis in and of itself. If we think pistis is just something we do with our minds, if we think faith is just something we do with our minds, it doesn't make sense. Right? But if we begin to see that pistis is embodied from the ground up, then we can see why baptism is actually a part of it. That's good. Matthew, can you talk to us about baptism also being a pledge, uh, in, in that it's a pledge of allegiance to King Jesus, baptism is also a pledge to discipleship and being a disciple. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, that, that, that's great. And uh, what you're doing when you're, when you're getting baptized is you are, um, you are uniting yourself with the community of those who are allegiant and who have already given bodily allegiance or in the process of it. That's what you should be doing at least right? Uh, you should be uniting yourself with those who have, have uh, made a bodily commitment to Jesus through their baptism. So this is something that is not disconnected from discipleship. It's the first step, right? The idea would be that it's the first act of what you do. It's the first act you do with your body, right? Uh, that is an act of allegiance of many acts that should follow, right? So it's the first one in anticipation of many acts of ongoing allegiance 
that you're going to do with your body. So we would properly understand baptism then to be the first act of discipleship, which is the first act of allegiance, because those are bound together. So you're going to keep going. Yeah, isn't it also uh, fair to say, uh, given what the New Testament says, that baptism is actually the commitment of allegiance, that this is in the, in the Bible and in the early church, there was nothing like the sinner's prayer or anything like that, that baptism is actually the way that you commit yourself to salvation and discipleship. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. It's the first act that you do of many acts that will follow that are acts of discipleship and allegiance. Yeah. Um, and kind of circling back to kind of reunite with our earlier conversation about uh, the Great Commission, um, you know, one of the things we touched on was that the baptism is in the threefold name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we, again, if we don't identify the gospel properly, this can be confusing to us. But when we have the fuller gospel in view, we see that, that really the baptism into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is a way of bounding what the true gospel is. The gospel is that the Father sends the Son. And the Son takes on human flesh. He dies for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Uh, he's buried on the third day raised, and he ascends back to God the Father, right, where he's installed in the position of power so we can send the Spirit. So there we've got it. We've got Father who sends the Son, and then we have the Father who, re- who comes back, uh, the Son who comes back to the Father in order that they both can send forth the Spirit. So uh, the classic articulations of the Trinity— Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are actual, actually very closely united to the gospel once we begin to see that the gospel is not just justification by faith, but that the gospel is this bigger story about the Father sending the Son so that then the Father and the Son can send the Spirit. Oh, that's good. Uh, Matthew, in just a second, I'd like to talk to you about justification and uh, how we're made completely right with God. Uh, when we respond to the gospel, like what we've been describing. But uh, something happened when you and I were talking about the faith statement for Renew, is that I shared with you our statement on baptism. Uh, I was getting all ready to uh, have a little bit of a squabble, uh, and you said, no, I'm, I'm good with that statement. And we talked about Everett uh, Ferguson's book on baptism. Uh can you say just a little bit about that book and how uh, it helped you and frames this conversation for us? Yeah, Everett Ferguson has written a, a comprehensive book on baptism in early Christianity. I can't remember the title, but the title is something like Baptism in Early Christianity. I, I think it's <laughs> Baptism in the First Five Centuries. Okay, yeah, it's it's got a pretty vanilla title, but it's a comprehensive book. Uh, and so he exhaustively looks at Uh, baptism, and all of the evidence for baptism in the first five centuries. And part of his conclusion is that baptism uh, was probably not done for infants during um, the earliest church time period. It's oftentimes asserted uh, that households would have had those who were baptized. uh, The infants would have been part of that. Um, He shows uh, from multiple strands of evidence that that's not likely. Um, including evidence, as I already mentioned, that Justin Martyr really stresses the voluntary nature of baptism, uh, and he clearly has uh, the idea of this being a a voluntary decision by the person who's being baptized. Tertullian, actually, when we first, the very first time we encounter any mention of of infant baptism in all of church history is Tertullian, so it's around 210, 
and uh, whenever Tertullian discusses baptism of infants, he actually is, uh, he objects to it. He doesn't like the idea of baptism of infants. He says it's beginning to happen, but he himself uh, is reticent about the practice and objects to it. And that's part of the reason he's writing his treatise. So whenever we, uh, we, we look and we see that it was an emerging practice in the third century, and it seems the way that Tertullian frames the conversation that uh, he sees it as an emerging practice that hasn't been happening previously and is writing in part because he objects to it. Um, it, it over time did become the, the norm, but it did take some time. Ferguson looks at evidence, including like the shape of baptismals uh, that they, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, and various strands of evidence that would suggest that infants were not baptized. Yeah. No, that's very helpful, Matthew. Okay. Talk to us now about our status after we've responded to the gospel in uh, repentance, confession, and baptism, pledging allegiance to King Jesus. Um, some people have uh, been concerned when I think they didn't fully understand your work that uh, you tended toward more of a Catholic understanding. But uh, in my conversations, uh, I think that uh, what you're saying is we are completely forgiven and justified and maybe talk about imputed righteousness and that whole ball of wax, if you would, please. Yeah, Actually, that's a huge. We, we've only got about 10 minutes, so you'll need yeah. to. To, yeah, to, you're opening a huge can of worms there, Bobby. My goodness. Yeah, some <laughs> um, summary statements. Yes, I can't think of a bigger can to open there. Um, well, uh, so there are different ideas about how righteousness connects to us. And um, so there are uh, really, to, to kind of make a long story short, the, the basic language that Protestants have preferred uh, uh, for this, uh, for this uh, uh, would be imputed righteousness. Uh, and the idea would be that uh, that we are considered righteous in God's sight, in God's presence, uh, because of Christ's righteousness either covering us or us being united to it in some way. Uh, Catholics have a different articulation, and it's actually a complex articulation that involves uh, either imparted or infused righteousness. They have two different models that they use. Um, imparted righteousness would suggest that we're not necessarily united to Christ. Christ, by his grace, provides us benefits, uh, and that those benefits then are imparted to us, but impartation involves an idea of separation, so that they're given to us, and we don't necessarily need to be connected with Jesus anymore, because they now have become our ongoing responsibility. Uh, and so they're imparted to us, so they, they, they become our own. Uh, and this, uh, this view of imparted righteousness is the dominant view in the Catholic position articulated uh, at the Council of Trent. So they have a secondary metaphor they use that is probably more favorable toward Protestant ideas that would be infused righteousness. It's like a liquid or organic metaphor that Christ has righteousness and it sort of leaks over to you. You might think about the idea of a sponge, right? That a fluid can, uh, if a, one part of the sponge gets wet, right? Even though the rest of the sponge is dry, it soon won't be, right? Uh, the wetness infuses across. Uh, and so the idea would be that uh, we are connected to Christ's righteousness, which then trickles over to us some way. Uh, but that's not the dominant metaphor uh, uh, among Catholics. So what I'm arguing is that, in fact, there might be just better scripture language. Uh, the language uh, that might be better would be incorporated righteousness or just in the Christ righteousness. that really capitalizes on the Bible's metaphors that Christ is the head and we are the body. And so it stresses the organic connection that we have to have to Jesus. Uh, that we're not righteous apart from him, nor could we ever be so. So it, it connects to traditional Protestant language of imputed righteousness. Um, but 
it, this conversation gets really technical really quickly. Imputation language involves um, the language of logizomai in Greek, uh, which is a financial metaphor of crediting. And the Bible never talks about righteousness being credited to us. It, it doesn't use that language of righteousness being credited to us in that way on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Uh, it talks about righteousness being credited, but not on the basis of Christ's righteousness, on the basis of faith. So there's a very slight distinction that might make imputation language a little bit problematic. And so other Protestants have been probing this language too. Mike Bird, um, D.A. Carson, I believe has done some work on this. It may not be Carson. I may not be remembering. Um, no, it's not. It's Gundry, uh, Robert Gundry. Anyway, there, there's been a number of scholars who've been pressing on this, trying to get a little bit more precise in terms of what the Bible teaches. So I'm, I'm kind of saying, let's take a step back and let's look at the overall imagery that the Bible is encouraging. And it just encourages us to have ideas of union in mind uh, when we think about how it is that we are connected to Jesus. So it's a traditional Protestant view, but I'm using slightly different language, which has made some people uncomfortable. So the idea that when we're united with Christ, in the words of Romans 6, you know, when we're united with Christ, uh, again, going back to baptism, when we're united with Christ in baptism, you are saying that we are, and our sins are totally taken away, and we are made right with God by what Jesus has done, and are being in Christ. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, I really, I really seize on that language in Christ. Um, I think that's the best language that the Bible gives us, um, as I think that it involves ideas of union, location, participation. There are different ways we could talk about what being in Christ means, right? Um, it seems to involve all those ideas of union, participation, um, location. Uh, and so there's a, a variety of different images that seem like they're being brought together with that in Christ language. So I think that it's just maybe unwise to go beyond that language very far. That, that might be the best language we can use to talk about how we participate in that very important gospel benefit of innocence or righteousness. That's very good. So I'm going to hold up the book again. Uh, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Uh, he's also got another book that when we were talking about earlier that I'm really excited about, Gospel Allegiance, talking about what the gospel is and how to be allegiant to it. Um, as far as I can tell, uh, Matthew, what's so encouraging is that your conclusions on almost everything are just in line with Renew Network and what we're doing. And you came to them totally independently without having any relationship with us. So that's so encouraging. And I just want to commend you for your commitment to Scripture. Um, I've had so many conversations with you, and the fallback is I was, well, that's actually not what the Bible really says. And it's so hard to do that today, to be bold, to say, I'm going to be a man or a woman, and I'm going to take the uh, teaching of Scripture, and it's the teaching of Jesus through Scripture this is going to be the foundation of how I walk with God. So thank you so much for your, um, it, it takes courage. It takes faith and boldness. And uh, I'm really just proud to know you and, and uh, have a relationship with you. I'm going to give you the last uh, statement for our, uh, okay. our time together for you to just uh, share whatever you would like to uh, and encourage uh, our people in any way. Yeah. Well, thanks, Bobby. I really appreciate what you said. And uh, certainly, um, I'm enthusiastic about the Renew Network and what you're doing. 
uh, it's tremendous work. And uh, I'm really happy to be associated with you guys. Um, and uh, I hope that whatever work I can do, it serves the church in its widest ways. Um, I, I feel like I've been blessed to have the opportunity to work on this material. So it's been a great privilege. Um, and I do hope to continue it. As, as Bobby mentioned, I have the Salvation by Allegiance Alone book out now. Um, but I have another book that's under contract um, with Brazos Press, uh, tentatively titled Gospel Allegiance. Uh, Bobby has, has read a, a draft of it already. Uh, it will probably not hit the shelves for about another year. Uh, and that's a, that book is going to try to make um, the material on Salvation by Allegiance Alone even more practical and experiential. Um, I think it's already a pretty practical book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, but the hope is to make uh, to, 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 to continue this work for the church and to make it even more accessible. That's the goal. Great. Well, thank you again, Matthew. God bless you. God bless your work. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thanks for listening to another Renewed Church Leaders podcast. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to apply the teachings of Jesus to hard topics and current cultural issues. We'll see you next time.